That's a tough machine. People think that the machine is possessed. Good grief, it's June already. I can't believe it. This podcast has been, what, six months going on now already? Good night. But, hey, this is Sean, Janitor Sean, Dauber, um, that guy who looks like a fat version of Charlie Chuck, whatever you want to call me, hi. And this is episode 12 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And, of course, in this episode, going to talk to you about Donkey Kong... PK, a homebrew by Tep392 from Atari Age. So, uh, hope everybody's been okay. There's one thing that I want to address right away just to get it over with, and that is the situation with the current trademark holders of Coleco and their interactions with, well, just to be short and terse, their interactions with homebrewers, let's just say. I'm not going to say a lot about this, uh, basically because I'm sure by this point, every other video game podcast in the world has talked about it, and I don't want to beat that dead horse too much. But all I'm going to say personally is this. I know different sides of the story, but all I know is somewhere in the middle is the truth that we don't know. Having said that, I haven't gotten any feedback in this regard yet, but in the previous episode, I offered a hearty congratulations to Atari 7800 homebrewer Bob DiCrescenzo for landing a gig with Coleco, and my congratulations is still completely going out to Bob over that. Uh, That's pretty big news. No matter what side you're on, if there is such a thing as a side in this whole mess, but even though the episode came out after that whole mess turned up, it was actually recorded, post-produced, and submitted to the podcast feed before all this stuff came out. So if uh, I kind of seemed ignorant about everything, believe me, I was not. It was just a matter of timing, I guess. It's kind of like the November 11th edition of Mac Life at the very top of the cover in the little, uh, I don't know what you call those things, were above the title of the magazine, they have like little things like the best iPad keyboard cases, page 66. One of the things has a picture of Steve Jobs and it says, he's gone. What's next? Page 14. And um, talk about unfortunate timing. Um, that issue of Mac Life had already been edited, proofed, submitted, and shipped just a couple of days before Steve Jobs died. So I saw that when I got that in the mail. When I got my issue of Mac Life in the mail and I saw that on top, I knew, I knew they were referring to his recent retirement announcement and that uh, the guy had gone so quickly. What And I don't know if it was so much unexpectedly so quickly after his retirement announcement when he, when he asked Apple to name Tim Cook CEO. But all I could think of is I feel so bad for the staff at this magazine for the hell they're going to catch from people <laughs> who I mean, I'm sure most people realize that, Hey, this stuff happens in advance, but, uh, you know, so that's basically my explanation for that. Although it wasn't quite as extreme, but Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I hope I didn't anger anybody when, uh, I congratulated Bob for that and totally seemingly ignored the other issues that were going on. Believe me, I was not, I was not. And what Bob had to say about all that was simply two things. He said, well, number one, I can't really say much more about my job because I have a non-disclosure agreement. In fact, 
the Atari Age thread that had the screen caps for the game he was working on. I think it was a Rainbow Bright game. That thread is basically locked. I guess. Not so much locked. It's more like not accessible. If you try to go to the, uh, if you try to go to that thread, you get a message saying that you don't have permission to view it. So I'm wondering if like he he was told, look, uh, that's still too much information. You got to hide it, and that might be what happened. But he did say that he had no idea about the brouhaha that was going on between Coleco and the people they were kind of at war with, I guess. He said he had no idea about that, and I totally believe him. I have no reason not to, but that's it. That's all I'm going to say about that big mess, especially because, hey, this is an Atari podcast. Yay, and I like my Atari. Oh, and I like my Atari so much that I got an eBay auction that contained a Sears Telegames 6 Switch, in the box and everything, it's it was it just the box. It didn't have the manual, didn't have the packaging, just the box itself and the console. Uh, a butt-ton of joysticks and paddle controllers that I'm going to have to go through and test. Uh, there are a couple of really odd joysticks in there that actually work really, really well. And, they, and uh, uh, I don't know who the manufacturer is. but uh, And there was a controller called the BC Blaster. And what that is, it's kind of like the... Starplex controller that was available for the Atari 2600. It was basically a simulated, I guess, asteroids control panel where you had separate buttons to rotate left and right, a thrust button, a fire button, and a hyperspace button. And the BC Blaster is kind of a very, very simplified equivalent to that. I think it was made in Wyoming or something. And unfortunately, one of the buttons broke off in transit, but I think I can fix that up with some Gorilla Glue and... Uh, also got a lot of boxed games and uh, loose games from that. And an Atari games binder, not the usual thick ones with the white plastic inside that you usually see, but these are, I don't know how to describe them. I've never seen these before. They're, they're about half the thickness of those, and they carry, I think, six games in them, six games each, and they were loaded too. Um, I did get a lot of duplicates that I'm going to hopefully send off to Atari Age for a little bit of a discount in the store. <laughs> But uh, that was cool, and it also came with an Atari 7800, and everything worked perfectly well, so I was really happy about that. Uh, this 7800 actually accepts all cartridges and does not give me a problem. It actually lets me pull out 7800 cartridges without popping the motherboard out, <laughs> so I'm really happy about that. I'm going to modify that, and uh, maybe that will be my backup 7800, unlike the other one where I couldn't deal with 7800 cartridges. I still haven't figured out the problem there, but... I'm sure I'll figure something out, uh, but hey, that's what's been going on in my life lately. Oh yeah, and uh, I did let the guy know that one of the that the uh, BC blaster button broke in transit, and I was pretty straightforward with him. I said, "Look, the packaging job was pretty poor on this. There was there were hardly any stuffing. Everything was moving around." And he actually sent back a few bucks and I was, and he was really nice about it. So I was very happy with that and I gave him a positive rating because he was very accepting. He wasn't, he wasn't disputing anything. He was, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, what can I do for you? So that was, that was really nice. And uh, I, I did say, look, all I want you to do is just from now on, just make sure you package things better. So, and shake the package. And if anything moves, you know, it's wrong. So you have to do it again. So you have to just do a better job. That's all I ask. But he still sent, he still knocked off a few bucks for me. And I thought that was really nice. Oh, and in addition to getting that uh, eBay 
package. I also got some feedback, actually, about the previous episode from Trek MD. He says, well, imagine my surprise when I heard two places mentioned in the podcast in relation to the bootleg scramble machines from Omni, Tulsa and Oral Roberts University. I went to college at ORU and I vividly remember the arcade room we had there. The scramble machines were removed before I was there, though. I didn't get to ORU until 1985. I do recognize the two dorm towers in the picture in the show notes. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's got to be something else. It's got to be surreal to see a picture of your old college where there's just this bizarre arcade piracy situation going on. Uh, thanks for that, Trek MD. And thank you also for your words about Scramble itself. Trek MD's feedback came right after I finished the episode, so I didn't get to squeeze it in on time. But here's what he had to say about Scramble for the 7800. When it comes to side-scrolling shooters, Scramble is among the best of the best. Released to the arcades in 1982, Scramble quickly became a success, but it saw a handful of ports to home systems. One of these was to the Vectrex. Thankfully, prolific 7800 programmer decided to bring this classic to the console, and we have to consider ourselves lucky. In Scramble, the player controls an aircraft that travels through a terrain that is constantly scrolling in order to destroy as many enemies as possible. The ship is equipped with a forward gun and bombs for its offensive action, but it also comes with a limited fuel supply. This means that the player has to keep an eye out for fuel depots on the ground to make sure the ship remains properly fueled. The game has six different stages through which the player must advance, with the final stage being the actual alien base. Each of the stages is different from the other with new... Oh my god, TrekMD, thank you so much for saying different from instead of different than. Oh man. <laughs> oh man, you really impressed this grammar snob here. Each of the stages is different from the other with new challenges that must be faced. Bob masterfully ported this game to the 7800, bringing the arcade experience home. The game has beautiful graphics that are very close to the arcade, even if the colors appear muted by comparison. The sounds are also well done, which is a good thing. This version has three levels of difficulty to choose from, easy, normal, and hard, with the normal difficulty being a match for Konami's arcade version, and hard a match for Stern's arcade version. Overall, Scramble is an excellent port of the arcade, and one I can highly recommend to owners of the 7800. Thank you, TrekMD, and I also concur. If you own a 7800, you gotta get Scramble. Even if you've never played the arcade version of Scramble, or the Vectrex version for that matter, it's still a good game. It really is. It's very creative, it's got a good challenge, and it's challenging enough that it's hard but not so hard that you can't learn to complete each of the six stages. I'm still scratching my head over why I never saw it. Well, the, oh, I'll tell you why I didn't see it in the arcade, because I I was, what, eight years old, maybe even seven when it came out. When, when did it come out? It came out in early 82, so I was still seven years old. So, yeah, that might be why I don't remember it that well. And And really, during the golden age of video games, I was too young to go to the arcades by myself, and my parents would never take me, except our monthly trip to the mall. That was it. So that that's probably why I didn't see Scramble. There are actually a surprisingly big number of games that I never actually saw in the arcade. Scramble is certainly one of them. I think I mentioned in the previous episode that I didn't even know Scramble was an arcade game until years after I had the Vectrex version. 
But TrekMD, thank you. Thank you so much for your feedback. Late, I don't care. I really don't care. Uh, the fact that you took the time to uh, contribute, I really do appreciate. Thank you so much. And you know, I think I should address some feedback I got. Uh, actually, I think I got this uh, before I released the last episode, but I didn't really address it. But uh, S. Ramirez 2008 commented, You had me at buttering bagels, but I can't believe you went there with the pizza thing. I'm a proud Houstonian, but a former New Yorker, smiley face. I mean, yeah, I, I'm i sorry. I just, I had to go there. <laughs> I really had to. Uh, see, the thing is, I was raised, I was born and I grew up, well, Okay, I I reached adulthood. I don't know if I ever grew up, but I reached adulthood in the Chicago area. And then I moved to New Jersey for eight years, and then I moved to the city of Chicago. And I've been in Chicago now for 11 years. And one thing that I really, really, really missed when I lived in New Jersey was what I considered to be decent pizza. Because all the pizza out there was really, really thin crust, and I, I couldn't deal with that. I need a little bit of body to my pizza. Actually, you know what? Where I lived, uh, I lived in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, which is the part of Neptune, New Jersey, that touches the ocean, hence the name Ocean Grove. But in Neptune, there was a pizza joint called Berardi's Pizza. They made excellent excellent pizza and i loved it i was i loved berardi's unfortunately berardi retired and they changed hands to uh it became louis d's pizza which was okay but it wasn't berardi's and i think they're just completely gone now oh and there was ocean grove pizza shop i did like them but we didn't really go there that much unfortunately even though there was literally walking distance from where we lived but i really really missed thicker crust pizza i'm not necessarily saying deep dish i love deep dish don't get me wrong but my favorite pizza is kind of somewhere in between thin crust and deep dish like something that has a thicker crust I'll t- you know what i'll tell you what lou malnati's what lou malnati's calls deep dish that's kind of where i like my pizza crust thickness they're not really that deep they're only about half the height of a typical deep dish i gotta say And while I'm on this, while I'm on this, I got to say this. There are actually two different Chicago styles of pizza. Thing is, they're both very similar. There's deep dish, and what deep dish is, is that's when the crust is basically almost like a bowl, and all the toppings go on top of there, and it's really, really thick pizza. And there's also stuffed pizza, which is very similar. Honestly, if you were given a blind taste test, you would not be able to tell the difference between deep dish and stuffed But stuffed is very similar, but what happens is they make the crust, and then they put the toppings on, and then on top of the toppings is a very, 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 very thin layer of crust. So thin you might not even be able to really see it, but... I love deep dish and I, my first deep dish pizza I actually had in Detroit in, uh, I think 1993, maybe 1994. And I really loved it. But yeah, my favorite pizza is kind of in the middle. I got kind of a happy medium, I guess, but I also wanted to address the buttering bagels. Yeah. I, I kind of complain about how, yeah, poor me where I work, we get free donuts and bagels every Friday, but they only have cream cheese and I don't like cream cheese. Well, Let me tell you something, S. Ramirez, 2008. Not too long ago, we had our big clients over. The executives were were over from our biggest client for for meetings all day. And they brought in kind of a small breakfast-y kind of platter for these clients for their meetings. And there were little packets of butter. 
And there were several packets of butter left over that they put in the employee fridge. And I had myself a buttered freaking sesame seed bagel when Friday happened after that. And I was a happy little boy. <laughs> oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, video games, video games, video games. Sorry about that. But I realized this is June and summer is coming up here in America, at least. I know summer is different in different parts of the world, but uh, for various reasons, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give this forewarning for various reasons. I'm not going to get too deep into right now. I might not be able to get the podcast out on time every two weeks during the summer. Uh, and if any of you who are Patreon sponsors want to modify your sponsorship to, uh, to reflect that, I totally understand. Uh, but I just wanted to get that out there that it might not be exactly every two weeks, but we'll see what happens. So that's what's going on there. And, um, Hey, what, what else can I say? Let's, um, let's talk about some games. I do believe we were going to be talking about Donkey Kong PK by TEP392. So let's have at it. Okay. Now here's the thing. I usually like to go into the gameplay details and like the history of the originating company of a game. And of course, in this case, Nintendo. However, instead of going into those details in this episode, I refer you to episode 19 of the Atari 7800 Game by Game podcast, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Phil covered Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. and went into some great detail about Nintendo in that episode, so rather than step on his toes and repeat what he said, I'm going to go another direction and talk a little bit about the designer the brainchild behind Donkey Kong, and that is a guy named Shigeru Miyamoto. Many of you have probably heard of him. Shigeru was born November 16th, 1952. Well, that's 11 years before my parents got married. But he was born in Kyoto in a small rural town called Sonobe. When he was a child, he loved exploring the caves and the forests in and around Sonobe, and that would inspire some of his later games, especially The Legend of Zelda. And when he was a wee lad, he was also into painting, reading, softball, swimming, piano, and guitar. And interestingly, to this day, actually, um, Shigeru Miyamoto's first love is music, really. He rarely plays video games when he's off the clock. He actually spends most of his time playing guitar and banjo, and he's a fan of bluegrass music, too. And, oh, by the way, uh, some of you may have seen this, but... I think it was right before Christmas, Shigeru Miyamoto was actually kind of a surprise guest on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon when Nintendo announced Super Mario Run. Uh, spoiler alert, I think it sucks. <laughs> but uh, when they introduced Super Mario Run, they pulled Shigeru Miyamoto out of the audience and he joined The Roots, The Tonight Show's house band, and they did a rendition of the Super Mario Brothers theme with Shigeru on lead guitar. That was pretty cool. But anyway, Miyamoto went to Kanazawa Municipal College of Industrial Arts, and he freelanced after he graduated with a degree in industrial design. And uh, being a fan of manga, he wanted to have a career as a manga artist. And there's this manga narrative structure, and I know I'm going to butcher this pronunciation because, well, I don't speak Japanese, <laughs> but uh, this, there's this uh, narrative structure in manga called Kisho Tenketsu. 
and he loved that style. And he also loved TV Westerns and undoubtedly that love of Westerns led him to design the characters in Nintendo's first coin operated arcade video game in 1979. It was called Sheriff. But it was actually Taito's Space Invaders that inspired Miyamoto to work in video games. In 1977, Miyamoto's father set him up with an interview with Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi. Nintendo was a playing card company, and they had been for nearly 90 years at the time. But in that last decade, like late 60s through the 70s, Nintendo was starting to branch out into toys and games, so Miyamoto showed Yamauchi some of the toys that he had created, which prompted Yamauchi to hire him. So Miyamoto started out as an apprentice in the planning department, and he then became the company's first artist. And after working on the game Sheriff, Miyamoto was on the development team who produced the 1980 game Radar Scope. And that was released in Japan in 1979, and then the rest of the world in November of 1980. And um, that worldwide release was an attempt to break Nintendo into the American gaming market. Unfortunately, though, Radar Scope, which was actually a success in Japan, and Exidy's license release of Sheriff, neither of them was a success in America. As a result, Nintendo had a lot of unsold radar scope machines taking up space and essentially costing them money. So Yamauchi decided that uh, they had to convert all those unsold radar scope games into a new game, and he designated Miyamoto to do these conversions, which meant that Miyamoto now had to come up with an idea of some kind of a game to replace radar scope. Initially, Miyamoto was considering doing some kind of a Popeye game with Popeye rescuing olive oil from Bluto, but Nintendo was unable to get the rights to Popeye and the other Popeye characters at the time, so Popeye became Mario, described as, and I quote, a funny hang-loose kind of guy. Bluto became Mario's mischievous but not necessarily evil pet ape Donkey Kong. And, of course, olive oil became Mario's girlfriend Pauline. Miyamoto adjusted his original Popeye storyline into a new one that was influenced partly by the movie King Kong and partly by Beauty and the Beast. But Miyamoto was a designer, not a programmer, so he realized, I gotta find some people to do this for me. So, under the supervision of Gunpei Yokooi, who was Nintendo's head engineer, there was a development team assembled to produce this new game. The concept behind the game involved different sized characters who would exhibit different actions and would have different reactions to various situations. And despite Yoko Oi's concern that the design would be too complicated, the development team's fear that the game would become too repetitious, and Nintendo of America's sales manager complaining that it wasn't a maze game or a shoot 'em up game, those, were, those genres were very popular at the time. Gee, I wonder why. Despite all that, Donkey Kong was finished, and on April 22nd, 1981, was released. Was it a success? Well, duh, it's Donkey Kong. It's freaking Donkey Kong. But let me tell you something about Donkey Kong. By the end of June 1982, just a little bit over a year after its release, it had made Nintendo $180 million. And then the following year, another $100 million. So by the end of 1983, that's $280 million in 
early 80s money. That's a lot of money from one game. And because Donkey Kong was such a success, we probably all know there were two arcade sequels, Donkey Kong Jr. released in August 1982, and Donkey Kong 3 released in the fall of 1983. And of course, there was also a spinoff called Mario Brothers, which was released in June 1983. Oh, uh, by the way, about Donkey Kong Jr., it was actually that game in which Mario officially got the name Mario. On the original production of Donkey Kong, he was simply called Jumpman, or maybe Jumpman. I don't know. That might have been his... Is, is it possible his name is Mario Jumpman? I don't know. But anyway, if you ever take a close look at the control panel on an actual Donkey Kong arcade cabinet, it's kind of obvious why he's called Jumpman, because the instructions actually put a lot of emphasis on jumping for some reason. Jump over the rivets, jump over the spaces, jump over the barrels, jump over the fireballs, jump, 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 jump. Okay, I get the point. You want me to jump. But um, anyway, going back to the whole Popeye thing, of course, most of you probably know by now that Nintendo eventually did get the license for Popeye. And of course, they released the Popeye arcade game in 1983, also under Miyamoto's design and supervision. And this is going a little bit off topic, but there's something I did want to address just to clarify something. If you ever read the instructions of a Popeye arcade game, you realize that the enemy in the game is not Bluto, but Brutus. And some of you who've seen a lot of Popeye cartoons may remember that there was a, I think it was the, the cartoons that were made in the 60s. There was no Bluto, but there was a character called Brutus who looked kind of similar. And it turns out they are actually two completely different characters that happened to exhibit some similar qualities. Uh, Bluto was a sailor and he was actually was a, he was a huge guy, but he was actually in pretty good shape. He was muscular, huge. And in the sixties cartoons with Brutus, Brutus wasn't a sailor. He was just kind of a fat guy with a pants and a regular shirt. Bluto was usually fighting Popeye over olive. Brutus was just plain being a jerk. He was just trying to wreak havoc all the time. And the reason that the 60s Popeye cartoons had the character Brutus instead of Bluto was because the lawyers, the legal team at King Feature Syndicate who did those cartoons were under the impression that for some reason they did not have the rights to use Bluto, so they made up the character Brutus. Turns out the lawyers were wrong. They absolutely could have used Bluto, but oh well. And the video game Popeye was actually based on the King Features Syndicate version of Popeye from the 60s. And it has the same theme music and everything. So that's a little off-topic fun fact for you. But let's go back to the topic of Donkey Kong. And specifically, I want to talk about the spinoff of Donkey Kong called Mario Brothers. We all know that Mario Brothers was the beginning of its own massively successful franchise. In fact, one of Shigeru Miyamoto's most successful games was Super Mario Brothers, which was released in 1985. There's an arcade version of it as well as an NES version of it. And of course, there have been countless other Mario games on just about every Nintendo-made home console ever since, with no end to new Mario games in sight. And Shigeru Miyamoto's most successful 100% original straight-from-his-own-mind game was, of course, The Legend of Zelda, which itself has been a massively successful franchise with numerous sequels and continuations. 
Anyway, going back to Shigeru Miyamoto in terms of his career, in 1990, uh, Nintendo's separate research and development departments merged, and so Miyamoto was put in charge of that new merged department, and he led the designs of, uh, you guessed it, even more Mario games, and uh, other games as well for the Super NES and the Nintendo 64. There's so much more that uh, you could say about Shigeru Miyamoto, but hey, I want to keep this podcast under nine hours. So basically to cut the story short, let's just say that Miyamoto had important roles in the designs of countless popular games on every Nintendo console since, from the GameCube to the Switch. Not to mention the aforementioned Super Mario run, which was Nintendo's first game for non-Nintendo-specific mobile devices. By that, I mean basically Android devices and iOS devices. So that's um, kind of a Reader's Digest version of the life and um, career of Shigeru Miyamoto. Of course, any discussion of Donkey Kong is incomplete without talking about its general influence. It obviously was a massively successful game. Miyamoto just hit the right spot. And of course, we know there was Donkey Kong, there was Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong 3 in the arcades, numerous home console Donkey Kong games like Donkey Kong Country. Uh, Donkey Kong appears in many different home console games, not just Donkey Kong titles. The Mario Brothers franchise spun off Donkey Kong, as I talked about earlier. Remember the Buckner and Garcia album, Pac-Man Fever? Yep, that has a Donkey Kong song on it, too. Do the Donkey Kong. You pick the hammer up and then you put the fire out. Now we think you know what Donkey Kong is all about. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. There was a Donkey Kong breakfast cereal. I'd have to go back and do some research on this, but uh, I'm not doing research on a cereal for a freaking podcast, so forget the research. But the Donkey Kong cereal, it was basically supposed to be the barrels from Donkey Kong. So basically just one screen's worth of objects and just the barrels. And the barrels basically tasted like Cap'n Crunch. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was the exact same recipe, just using a different mold to make that cereal. And what discussion of Donkey Kong would be complete without talking about the movie King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters? And for those of you who haven't seen it, there are two things I want to say about that movie. Number one, it's supposed to be a documentary, but the footage was edited so much that it's essentially a fictional story. That doesn't mean it's not fun watching, though. I really do recommend it. It's a fun movie to watch. Just keep that in mind. It is fictionalized. And number two, for those of you who have seen it, I just want to say one thing. If everything you know about Billy Mitchell is from that movie, then you have the terribly, terribly wrong impression of Billy Mitchell. Because let's face it, that movie makes him out to be the biggest jerk. Um, I just want to say this much. Everybody I've talked to who has met him says that the way he is portrayed in King of Kong is just absolutely dead wrong. And let me tell you something. I met Billy Mitchell myself. I met him in August of last year, 2016, at Underground Retrocade. Um, at Underground Retrocade, they were having a screening of the then new movie, Man vs. Snake. And there was a panel discussion afterwards. It was The panel consisted of Tim McVeigh, who, about whom Man vs. Snake is about, uh, his wife, Tina, um, Billy Mitchell, 
was there as well. Walter Day, who, in case you haven't heard of him, he's basically the, I'd like to say the godfather of competitive video gaming. He founded the Twin Galaxies Arcade, which evolved into the international scoreboard that we probably have all heard of by now. And who else was it? There was Joel West. Man, I feel bad because I don't have any significant thing to talk about with Joel West. I know he's important to video arcade gaming, (laughs) Um, but during the discussion, like someone actually brought up how it seemed that Billy was made to be this evil villain in King of Kong. And I don't remember if it was Billy Mitchell or Tim McVeigh who answered that and said, well, here's the thing. If you're making a documentary and it does nothing but tell the hundred percent truth, you're going to end up with a pretty boring movie. And uh, they went on to talk about how you could uh, have the same script and give it to nine different directors, and you're going to get nine completely different movies. So it's basically how they want to make the story told, how to make it look exciting. And seriously, he was a completely different person from what he was like in King of Kong. And one thing I got to say about, there are two things I got to say about this guy. He is hysterically funny. He really is. He's got a, He's got this crazy sense of humor. Another thing is that he has this large personality. Like he's, I don't know how else to describe it. He's uh, like when he talks, a crowd will gather around him just to listen to him talk. He's got this very outreaching personality, which was kind of interesting because my Pie Factory podcast, I I have to mention Pie Factory podcast, don't I? Yes. My Pie Factory podcast co-host, Jimmy G, pointed this out that. Walter Day was is a very, very kind of quiet guy. And Billy Mitchell is kind of the exact opposite. Basically, almost seems like he's trying to balance out Walter's quietness. By the way, Walter Day, really, really nice guy, too. But, yeah, I just wanted to get that out there because I know that there are a lot of people who hate Billy Mitchell simply based on King of Kong. Trust me, that is not what Billy Mitchell is like. And there was a Saturday morning Donkey Kong cartoon in the early 80s. I think it was part of Saturday morning Supercade, but I don't 100% remember. But um, I don't know, maybe the less said about that, the better. But again, you know, couldn't just do a Donkey Kong episode without having to talk about all of that. So now that I've gotten all that out, why don't we talk about how Donkey Kong PK turned up on the Atari 7800. Donkey Kong PK actually started as Donkey Kong XM. Oh, the XM. Oh, in case you haven't been following that, there was a message from Kurt Vendel. Is it Vendel? Vendel? I've always heard it Vendel, so I don't know. Kurt, if I'm saying it wrong, I apologize. But Kurt is uh, back at work on the XM after having his seventh heart surgery. And uh, that that's just nuts. I, Kurt, if you're listening, please just take it easy on yourself. If you're not 100% yet, just please wait until you're 100%. And your health comes first. First things first. But regardless, there are some XMs in existence, mainly for developers. And what the XM has, for those of you who don't know, who haven't been following the whole history of the XM, the plan is for the XM to have a pokey chip on board, or more likely a hokey chip, which is kind of a homebrew equivalent that's compatible with the pokey, since the pokey chips are becoming rarer and rarer by the moment. Also, the XM has built-in high-score saving capabilities, and Donkey Kong XM was supposed to take advantage of both of those. And the 
real purpose behind Donkey Kong XM, Donkey Kong PK, whatever you want to call it, is basically to improve Donkey Kong as it currently exists on the Atari 7800. Most common complaint about that Donkey Kong is the sound. The sound is grating to a lot of people. It doesn't bother me all too much. And the other big thing is the Atari 7800 official Donkey Kong does not have the pie factory level or cement factory, however you want to call it. Long story short, Donkey Kong XM, Donkey Kong PK takes care of those two big issues and a lot more. It's basically there to make a more arcade accurate Donkey Kong. And some people wonder, well, isn't Donkey Kong XM, Donkey Kong PK more of a hack than a homebrew? Well, here's the thing. It actually did start out as a hack. The main source of the game is the original Atari 7800, with the code being modified where necessary. But given all the changes that eventually happened, so much programming went into Donkey Kong PK that I think it qualifies as a homebrew at this point. Now let's talk about the history behind it. When it started as Donkey Kong XM, TEP392 on Atari Age, who designed this game, was repurposing circuit boards from old Jinx, Tower Toppler, Cracked, Barnyard Blaster, and Dark Chambers cartridges because the layout of those circuit boards matched exactly what he needed. The earliest I could tell in terms of um, ROM release was October 18th, 2012, when TEP392 posted one for testing purposes. And at that point, the game was only available with the Japanese screen order configuration. Ten days later, on October 28th, TEP392 posted a PAL version of the ROM so that um, Europeans could test it. In TEP392, some of us know him as Perry. Perry observed that, in his experience, all PAL games that use Pokey have some kind of static sounds that he just couldn't get around. So October 30th, 2012... Perry announced that he wanted to add high score cartridge functionality, but he didn't have one to test it on, so he asked if anybody could sell him or lend him one so that he could properly test it. On Halloween, Mark Oberhäuser posted his design for the Donkey Kong XM box, and he said it was based on the box design from the original Atari 7800 game boxes that were released in 1984. So that was an interesting decision, because in case you don't know, there was a round of cartridges released for the 7800 in 1984, and the design on not only the boxes but also the cartridge label was different from how it actually was when the system was re-released in 1986. And uh, they're sought-out collector's items, actually. So it's interesting that Mark went with that kind of design. And by the way, I'll put a link in the show notes to Mark Oberhäuser's website where you can purchase his box for Donkey Kong XM. And I know I've made this disclaimer before, but in case you haven't heard my prior iterations of this disclaimer, if you live in the United States, you cannot order a Mark Oberhäuser box directly from the forum on his website. You have to email him separately. On November 5th, Perry posted an updated ROM that auto-detects whether you have a PAL or NTSC system. NTSC, of course, being the North American standard. The Pie Factory stage by this point had existed, but not quite arcade accurate, so this release on November 5th had a fix for that. The way the ladders move up and down, 
now more accurately behaved as in the arcade version. Ooh. Yeah, did I mention before I live down the street from the fire department? <laughs> Hope everything's okay. But anyway, this release also had a tweak that allowed Donkey Kong to throw blue barrels. Previously, he was only throwing the regular orange barrels. The next day, in response to a question from Atari Age user Bones Brigade, Tep392 said that he was going to add an option to play Donkey Kong with the screens going in the United States order, and you can select which order you want with the difficulty switch. November 18th, TEP392 announced that 46 of 50 cartridges available have been paid for and will be shipping in December, and his goal was to get those cartridges out before Christmas. November 30th, 2012, TEP392 said that he was able to free up some space used by the original Atari GCC Donkey Kong code that he could allow the fireballs to climb to higher levels than they had climbed before. He further theorized that with the game's original 48K size, you may have heard me talk about uh, the size of the code, Atari could have fit the pie factory in, but not the various between-level animations, like, say, Donkey Kong grabbing Pauline, climbing up the ladders, and those things. But Perry also tweaked the existing code that controls barrel movement so that it's much more efficient code. So basically, less code to do the same thing. December 9th, TEP392 posted an updated version of the ROM file, and it had several fixes and enhancements, including, but not limited to, Mario now having the ability to bounce off the edge of the screen when jumping away from the barrels and making the fireballs turn blue when Mario has a hammer. Those features weren't there before. And later that same night, TEP392 posted a special version of the ROM that starts you at level 22, so you can see the kill screen in action. Ah, we'll talk about that kill screen later on. December 13th, TEP392 uploaded a new ROM that had a fix for a color issue with the fireballs, and he made an interesting discovery. The original Atari 7800 version of Donkey Kong had skid graphics programmed into the cartridge. And what I mean by that is, if you ever played the arcade version of Donkey Kong, you notice that when Mario jumped, when he landed, there'd be like little little lines by his feet that kind of, they were kind of like skid indicators, I guess, kind of cartoony in a way, like in a comic strip. Maybe you notice that that is not in the Atari 7800 version. Well, TAP392 found that those were actually programmed in there, but not really used. So what he did was he actually activated those and made those little skid lines a little bit more arcade accurate. December 18th, TEP392 announced that he made a, a few more fixes and a few other changes, although he hadn't yet posted the updated ROM that had those changes. He updated the point values for the hat, the purse, and the umbrella so that they change with each level. He also changed the way the number of points you get for hammering various items is determined. That way, it more accurately reflected the probability of getting those points so that it was similar to the same probability of getting those points in the arcade version. Also, the way that Mario's jumping was handled was changed a bit so that it was, again, more accurately closer to the way the arcade version handled it. Okay, let me put it to you this way. If you've ever played, say, the arcade Donkey Kong and you've jumped a barrel and you weren't awarded any points for it, it's kind of related to that change. Uh, it's The best I can tell you is that 
The points that you're awarded when you jump are based on Mario's highest position at the time the barrel goes past him. So it would be possible at times for Mario to jump over the barrel and it still not get any points because basically the point detector wasn't quite set off properly. And interestingly, TEP392 determined that to make it more arcade accurate, the 7800 version should behave the same way. And going into the new year on January 4th, unfortunately, Perry did not meet his goal of shipping the game before Christmas, partly because of the changes he had to make and partly because of how busy the season is by its own nature. He was busy examining the source code of the arcade game to determine how things work. And without going into the long details, remember, I want to keep these podcast episodes under nine hours. Let's just say that there were a few minor bug fixes and more enhancements to make some graphics and artificial intelligence closer to that of the arcade game. The player one difficulty switch now would have the ability to adjust the difficulty of the ramp screen so that beginners would have a better chance of completing it. A lot of newbies do have a hard time with that ramp screen. January 12th. TEP392 mentioned that upon further examination of the arcade code, he updated the logic behind the barrel movement. He also implemented the ability to choose whether you play the US layout or the Japan layout by way of the Player 2 difficulty switch. January 27th, Perry released the latest version as a demo, emphasizing that when you complete the rivet screen at the end of the level, the rivet screen just keeps repeating. It doesn't move on to the next level. The new ROM had more enhancements to make the game closer to the arcade version and the aforementioned functionality of the two difficulty switches were now flip-flopped. Player 1 switch now made you choose between US and Japan. Player 2 switch now controlled the difficulty of the first screen. The menu now featured difficulty levels. There's beginner, which would start you on level one, intermediate, which would start you on level two, and advanced, which would start you on, you guessed it, level three. And it's worth mentioning that the game only used the pokey chip for sound, meaning that the cartridges that were being produced did not have any sound because the game would actually rely on the sound chip that was on the XM unit. And yes, that means that the game was, for all intents and purposes, silent, unless you happen to be one of the lucky few that had one of those developer XM units. Perry said that he toyed with putting Tia sound in the game just to make up for the lack of sound, but he was so disappointed with the quality of that sound that he just fi he figured, well, you know what, I'm just going to leave it out altogether. And he also announced that the final complete ROMs would be sent to those who purchased the cartridge. February 19th, Atari Age user Yandman posted pictures of a DKXM box that he designed, basically kind of an alternative to Mark Oberhoiser's. It's actually a pretty cool design. It's a gatefold box, and it has a plastic mold inside to hold the cartridge. On that same day, TEP392, Perry announced more bug fixes and arcade-accurate enhancements, saying that um, at that point he was satisfied with how the game worked and he would be making no further changes to the gameplay, and that the only thing he had left was to add high-score cartridge support. And there's another siren. Oh, man. Busy day. And where was I? Oh, yeah. Did I say high-score cartridge support? Yeah. And um, for that high-score cartridge support, Perry referred to some code that Bob DiCrescenzo wrote in order to learn how to add that high-score cartridge support. 
But despite his assertion, on February 27th, Perry pointed out that he broke down and he did add some details to some of the graphics. So much for not making any more changes. But anyway, on March 12th, he posted the latest versions of the demos to Atari Age. And on March 17th, as a St. Patrick's Day present to the world, he announced new tweaks in hopes of posting them later in the evening. One of the tweaks he added was Pauline yelling help. He added the animation in there, and he adjusted the length of time that Mario possessed the hammer, so it was closer to how the arcade version worked. Two weeks later, Perry updated the ROM with a new Mario sprite courtesy of Atari Age user Defender2600, and he adjusted the speed in which Mario climbed the ladders. I never knew this, but apparently in the Japanese version of Donkey Kong, a barrel will not go down a ladder if Mario is climbing the ladder. The new updated ROM that was posted on this day would have that feature if you played it with the Japan layout option. April 4th, TEP392 said that he was just about finished. And over the next few days, there was discussion about the high score table. TEP392 didn't match the high score screen font to that of the arcade because he literally did not have enough room left to do that. So the high score cartridge itself actually controls the font. So if you happen to have Donkey Kong PK or Donkey Kong XM and notice that that font doesn't match the arcade, that's why he literally did not have room to do it. April 10th, TEP392 posted the release candidate, the first real release candidate and he asked people to spend time playing it over the next two weeks and let him know if there are any more bugs that need to be ironed out. April 17th, TEP392 announced a contest. Basically, play Donkey Kong XM, and he posted a special version of the ROM for this contest, and the highest scorer would win a Donkey Kong XM box designed by Mark Oberhäuser. On April 30th, Perry announced that he had a second box that he was going to give away, so that would go to the second place winner, and that was Atari Age user Kevin Moss 3, or is it Kevin Moss 3, and his score was 96,400. First place winner was Trevor, with a score of 138,000. Congratulations, Kevin and Trevor. May 11th, TEP392 posted another updated ROM, and it featured tweaked Donkey Kong sprites. And the oil can had an updated palette so that when the oil can was on fire, the fire was the same color as the fireballs it produced. There was also kind of a semi-nitpicky display issue in that on the ramp screen, the third fireball didn't bounce as the other fireballs did. But this new updated ROM fixed that so the third fireball does actually bounce. Again, we're talking about arcade accuracy here. June 2nd, Perry posted what he hoped would be the final release candidate. At this point, all that was left in terms of the game itself was for Kurt Vendel to test it on his XM unit. June 10th, Perry posted another updated ROM that fixed some of the bugs that Defender 2600 and Trevor found when testing. And we're going to skip ahead a month to July 17th. TEP392 posted another updated release candidate, and this time it was primarily bug fixes and some cosmetic enhancement. At this point, there were already two batches of cartridges that were reserved and pre-ordered, and Perry announced that both of those batches would ship at the same time. 
10 days later, July 27th, Perry posted another updated ROM with a few more tweaks. Most significantly, there was an option to turn off high score cartridge support. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, the reason is that apparently some consoles, primarily if not exclusively PAL consoles, had some issues with high score cartridge compatibilities on some games. I don't think that that was ever an issue at this point with Donkey Kong XM or Donkey Kong PK, but Perry put that on-off switch in there as a precaution so that if the game crashed, if you had a high-score cartridge attached, you could just toggle off the high-score cartridge support. And Perry also announced that he put in a surprise for users of the Pro System emulator. By this time, the functionality that he put in the difficulty switches was removed, that is, the ability to choose between the US and Japan configuration and the difficulty of the first ramp screen. He took those out of the difficulty switches and put them in as menu options. On July 30th, TEP392 posted release candidate number 8. He changed the difficulty text to read Arcade and Beginner. And going into the next month, August 23rd, TEP392 announced that he had just posted the final demos. On August 28th, there was a bug fix. Apparently there was some odd behaviors happening. If you hit the fire button at certain times, well, that bug was fixed on this day. October 3rd, my 39th birthday, pre-orders still had not shipped. Now keep in mind, this is October and Perry had wanted the cartridges to ship by Christmas of 2012. And he was feeling pretty bad for that. So basically to make up for that, he decided to include printed copies of his newly designed manual, which he created with Microsoft Publisher. Originally, he was just going to sell the cartridges. A good deal of the text in that manual came from the manual that was included with the Atari 8-bit version, and the new manual included screenshots taken from Donkey Kong XM. And that weekend, October 4th through 6th, was the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, a big event. Atari Age is always represented there, so Albert brought a copy of Donkey Kong XM to demonstrate on the Atari 7800XM. And apparently that game brought a lot of attention. A lot of people were thrilled to play that thing. October 7th, TEP392 announced that the first two batches of cartridges had been shipped to buyers, and that was well over 100. By this time, there were some more bugs that were fixed, and he posted final demo ROMs for different permutations, like Bear 7800, XM version for emulators, a version for Mateos cartridge users, Basically, you name the permutation, there was probably a demo posted specifically for it. And an interesting thing happened on November 12th. TEP392 put his, and I quote, one-of-a-kind Pokekong up for auction on the Game Gavel website. Now, what was Pokekong? Well, Pokekong was kind of a predecessor to Donkey Kong XM. It was basically a hacked version of the Atari 7800 Donkey Kong but it was basically a sound hack. It used the pokey for sound. Perry didn't really do anything with the graphics in that game, but he did add an intro screen with Donkey Kong climbing the ladders and the how high can you get screens. The winning bid for that cartridge was $113, so even just that minor hack was in such demand that it got $113, and that was because somebody sniped it at the end and more than doubled what the current price was at the time. 
And flash forward to 2014, let's talk May 20th. TEP392 announced a limited availability of a special version of the game called Donkey Kong PK, which is Donkey Kong XM, but built with CPU Wiz's VersaBoard. And the VersaBoard is a brand new, never used Atari 7800 cartridge board that can handle up to, I think, I think 512K ROMs. So they can handle some pretty huge ROMs. And because the Versa board was now available for Perry, that meant that he no longer had to desolder and reuse old Atari 7800 cartridge boards. And he could now use onboard Pokey Sound because the Versa board supported it. But because of the cost of both the Versa board and the ever increasingly rare Pokey chips, the asking price was higher than that of Donkey Kong XM. Perry was asking $50 plus shipping, which, believe me, people were very happy to pay. <laughs> On August 4th, 2014, Tet 392 posted a message saying that he had a lot of Donkey Kong XMs for anybody who was still interested in buying them, reminding them that because they rely on the XM's onboard pokey sound, the game would be silent unless it's played through an actual XM, and again, they're still not released. September 29th, TEP392 posted, and I quote, I had 10 pokey chips show up in the mail. What could I do with them? Smiley face. <laughs> I think that was a little hint, meaning that he was going to make some more Donkey Kong PK boards. October 28th, Atari Age user Jinx posted about a bug he and his daughter found when they were playing a two-player game using the Japan configuration. What had happened was his daughter had lost a life on the Pie Factory stage, and instead of the game switching over to Jinx's turn, the game blacked out and crashed. Tet392 apologized and added that he didn't know about that bug, mainly because he never lost a life on that screen to see what would happen. But having said that, all versions of Donkey Kong XM and Donkey Kong PK that have been produced since January 2015 do not have that bug. Which, by the way, includes my copy, so yay! And then flashing forward to late 2016, there were more copies of Donkey Kong PK made available and shipped out in the spring of 2017, which is the shipping batch whence mine came. You notice that that was a pretty detailed timeline. You've probably noticed before that I use these timelines as well in other games. And there's a reason I do that. It's not to fill space in a podcast. It's kind of giving you an idea of what the homebrew developing process is like. It shows you all the work that's involved. I only mentioned the timeline. What I didn't mention were other factors at play. For example, in April 2013, TEP392 had to deal with a flood in his basement, which, of course, made Perry change his priorities. Like, you know what? Forget developing for now. I have to deal with a flood. And also, the XM carts, the Donkey Kong XM carts, were made with recycled Atari 7800 cartridge boards, which added a lot of time because it meant that Perry had to desolder those boards. And uh, if you've never desoldered something, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. And just to give you an idea, I think Perry was averaging about half an hour to completely desolder one board. Yeah. And of course, he'd have to then solder the new chips to the boards. So basically desoldering and soldering, or if you're from anywhere but the United States, desoldering and soldering, that takes up a lot of time. 
And obviously when the Donkey Kong PK carts were being made, he now had those brand new Versa boards, which eliminated the need for desoldering and ergo increased the production time significantly. And like a lot of us, Tet392 has a busy work schedule. And remember what Phil the No Swear Gamer always says, always keep first things first. And as for those Versa boards, I mean, I don't really know a heck of a lot about them. There are a lot of questions on Atari Age. How can I get one? How can I get one? Thing is, they are not there for your casual game player. They are there for people who develop for the 7800. If you are a 7800 developer, I suggest you reach out to CPU Wiz on Atari Age. And from my personal dealings with CPU Wiz and everybody else who's dealt with them, they will tell you he is the nicest guy. So be nice to him and he will help you out big time. But having said all that, I'm going to go through a little bit of how Donkey Kong XM, Donkey Kong PK differs from the original Atari GCC produced 7800 Donkey Kong. Some of this stuff has already been mentioned. Some of it has not. And man, that fire department's busy today. Wow. Very busy today. Hope everything's okay. But obviously the big, 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 now let's let the ambulance go by or fire truck, whatever. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. I think I mentioned this before, but my my apartment is actually pretty soundproof. I can't hear the neighbors. I, I usually can't hear the passing traffic, but man, it's not soundproof enough for the sirens. But <laughs> the most obvious feature added in Donkey Kong PK, Donkey Kong XM, is pokey sound, meaning the sounds are going to sound a lot better. Not using the Atari 2600 Tia chip for the sound this time. On the original Atari 7800 version of Donkey Kong, on the rivet screen, Pauline is kind of hovering on a small beam to the left side of Donkey Kong. But on Donkey Kong PK, she's standing on a complete platform above Donkey Kong, as in the arcade version. On Perry's new version of Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong pounds his chest, and you can actually hear him pound his chest. And mentioned earlier before, the Pie Factory is now back in Donkey Kong. Mentioned this as well, but it's worth mentioning again. Another enhancement, Donkey Kong now has a intro screen and transition animations. Also, the sprites and the colors were updated to more closely resemble the arcade equivalents. The score and level text and colors have been updated to resemble their arcade counterparts. The artificial intelligence for fireballs and firefoxes are arcade perfect as well as their speed and spawning frequency. The barrel tossing patterns now match their arcade equivalents, as do the springboard patterns on the elevator screen. Now, Donkey Kong in the arcade had a couple of unique features that you will not find in most, if not any, home versions. Except, of course, Perry's Atari 7800 homebrew Donkey Kong, whether it be the XM or PK version. One of those is a pretty well-known little trick you can do on the rivet screen. What happens is, if you position Mario to the left or to the right of Donkey Kong on the same level where Donkey Kong is standing... Like, usually if you're standing right in front of the support that holds up the beam that Pauline is on, what you can do is hit the jump button and then move the joystick either left or right immediately afterwards. And if you time it right, you get 100 points seemingly for no reason at all, just for jumping. 
And I read about that in the September 1983 edition of Joystick Magazine when a reader sent in a letter and found out that he had discovered that. And uh, what was interesting is that the editor had responded and said, well, that's nothing more than just a, a neat little trick you can do to amuse somebody and that it's a waste of time because you're losing precious bonus points. Well, that's not necessarily true, actually, because if you are good at doing that 100-point jump, you can keep on doing that till time runs out, and then when the timer reaches zero, you still have, I think, four more jumps that you can do before you die. But if you keep getting that 100-point jump, you'll actually get more points than you would if you had finished that screen before time ran out. So that's something to consider. And I only just learned why that special jump exists while I was researching for this episode. Apparently, the reason that you get 100 mystery points just for jumping near Donkey Kong is, well, I'll put it to you this way. If you actually touch Donkey Kong, you will die. You will die. And in order to detect whether or not you touch Donkey Kong, apparently the programmers put an invisible enemy next to Donkey Kong on either side of him. And when you touch that invisible enemy, you lose a life. And it turns out that if you get close enough, you can actually jump over that enemy just by standing in place and jumping. And basically, the game doesn't differentiate whether you jump over, say, a barrel or a fireball or a firefox. Basically, if you jump over something that'll kill you, then you get points for it. So basically, that's what's going on here is the game is detecting that you are jumping over something that'll kill you, ergo, you deserve points. Well... I don't know of any officially sanctioned home console or home computer release that has what we call the Kong's foot bonus, because you're essentially jumping over his foot, really. But, of course, because Perry wanted arcade accuracy, he put that in this game. The other unique feature of Donkey Kong, not as many people know about this, but if you saw King of Kong, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, then you know about this. Donkey Kong has a kill screen on level 22. Uh, there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up if anybody wants to watch. What happens is your bonus timer, as you probably know, is not just a bonus timer, but it's also a, the equivalent of a shot clock in basketball. The bonus timer runs out, you lose a life. Well, when you get to level 22, the bonus timer literally does not give you enough time to finish the level, and you end up just dying. I don't know if it's so much that the timer itself visually runs out of time. I think it's the logic behind it that calculates it. It does kind of a miscalculation that ends up with Mario just basically keeling over of a heart attack, I guess, as it were. Well, according to Perry, that kill screen is also in Donkey Kong PK and Donkey Kong XM. And he admits that he can't get to that screen, so he actually had to cheat to get there. And as you heard earlier, he did release a ROM that'll start you on level 22 so you can actually play the kill screen to see what happens. Basically, that tells you, I think, pretty much everything you need to know about Donkey Kong XM itself. You know what I think might be helpful? I don't think Phil covered this in his Donkey Kong episode, so I'm going to cover it now. And that is some various strategies you can use to play Donkey Kong and to maybe get further than you normally would. Well, 
I don't know if I'm really the best person to give you some Donkey Kong strategies because I don't really do that well. I can't get past the elevator level in level four unless I'm like super lucky. But I can tell you some things that I do to get past, say, the rivet stage and the ramp stage. So let me talk about that. The strategy that I use for the ramp stage, first of all, I don't use the first hammer. I don't. What I do is, as soon as the ramp stage begins, I immediately start moving to the right, and I don't stop, and I climb straight up the ladder, then I go back up to the next possible ladder onto the next level, and usually there's a barrel just about to hit me, so I have to time it right so that I hit jump as soon as I get off that ladder, and then I get myself 100 points. And um, basically, I just carefully work my way up and when I get to the hammer near the top of the screen, I use it. I use that hammer, and I hammer away as much as I can, especially in later levels. I try to influence the barrel movement up there so I can make a clean break for Pauline. And um, I don't know what else I can say about that other than to watch the frequency of the barrels before you climb up to the same level that Donkey Kong is at. In the second ramp screen, like level two, the level two ramp screen, I do that again, where immediately, as soon as the level starts, I'm heading to the right. But while I am walking, I will hit the jump button. What a lot of people don't realize is that if you jump while you walk, you're actually going to slow the pace down a little bit. Mario jump walks slower than he walks. But what happens is, usually my timing is when I pass the broken ladder, I kind of jump over it just for kind of a, uh, I don't know, calibration point, I guess. And then what'll happen is by the time I get to probably about four fifths over to the right, there will be a barrel being thrown at me, almost about to hit me on the foot. And when it's just about to hit the back of my foot, I jump. And if I time it right, I get a hundred points. And um, I basically repeat the same strategy that I mentioned before, just carefully climbing up the ladders and using the hammer only on the toppermost level that has it. On the ramp screen for levels three and above, again, I'm moving to the right as soon as possible. This time, the barrel that Donkey Kong throws to the lower right is going to get there before I will. So what I got to do is time myself so that I jump over it as soon as it hits the ramp. And then I'm pretty good from there. And again, do not get the hammer. Save the hammer until you get to the second highest level. As for the rivet screen, a friend of mine who kind of tutored me on how to get past the rivet screen showed me this strategy. And it actually is the same strategy that Steve Wiebe used in uh, King of Kong. What I do is I try to clear the left side first. I don't go for the purse or whatever that is on the bottom level. I just go up the ladder, I clear the first rivet on the left, and then I skip the second level and go up to the third, clear that rivet, jump back, and then climb up to the fourth level, clear that rivet, and then I go back to the rivet that I skipped, and assuming that there are no fireballs or firefoxes right there, I will grab that hammer immediately and then walk my way across that rivet. And um, if I time everything right, then what's going to happen is any fireballs or firefoxes that I hit with the hammer, they are going to regenerate on the left where the, basically it's blocked off because I cleared the rivets. 
The Firefox's fireballs, they regenerate in, on the opposite side of the screen of where Mario is. So that's what I do first. I clear that left side, and then I clear that second rivet on the right, going up, that is. Then I go down and clear that rivet, and then I climb my way back up to the third level, grab the hammer there, and clear as many Firefox's fireballs, whatever, on that level, and move to the right as soon as I can to force the fireballs firefoxes to regenerate on the left that way i have a bunch of fireballs on the left who will not make their way across to the other side of the screen which leaves me free to go all the way up to the level where donkey kong is and i do that little foot jumping trick that i talked about until time runs out and then i clear the last rivet and that's the end of the level so that's how i do it and um the elevator level well it's I actually, I think in the video I posted on YouTube, you can actually see what I do for that. So I'm just going to refer you to that rather than try to explain it. However, I cannot do the elevator level uh, reliably once I hit level four. So I'm still trying to figure that out. There's a secret to it. And I've watched all the tutorials on YouTube, but I still can't get it unless I just happen to get lucky. But uh, Pie Factory, I just plain just do it. You know, I just keep moving up as quickly as I can and just hope that all the fireballs and firefoxes spawn to the left. So I don't know. That's the best I can tell you there. <laughs> but um, having said all that, uh, it would help if I go over a few of the finer points that are mentioned in the manual. The Donkey Kong PK manual kind of looks like the original Atari 7800 Donkey Kong manual, except it is color. The cover is in color and the screenshots are in color. The original Donkey Kong manual does not have any screenshots. But what I find interesting about the manual is that those little things that are on the conveyor belts in the Pie Factory, the uh, cement factory screen, whatever you want to call it, those things are called sand piles, according to the manual. So I found that to be interesting. But uh, this is a really nice manual that comes with the cartridge. Um, and one thing I do want to say, I... I absolutely do not want to discourage anybody from getting the Mark Oberhäuser box because he does a great job with those boxes. But I'm finding that for me, I can actually fit the Donkey Kong PK cartridge in the box with the original Donkey Kong. They fit together, actually, one on top, one on the bottom, uh, if I rotate the bottom one sideways. And it's perfect. It's a space saver for me. <laughs> so if you want to go that route, it's possible. But if you'd rather get a dedicated box to it, then get one from Mark Oberhäuser. He has one for XM and one for PK. So I guess whichever one is your variety, that's what you're going to do. And what I appreciate is that in the manual, the missing screen is actually referred to as the Pie Factory. <laughs> but um, as far as I can tell, the scoring in Donkey Kong PK is as it is in the arcade version. Uh, you have a bonus clock that starts at 5,000 at level 1, 6,000 at level 2, 7,000 at level 3, 8,000 at level 4, and higher. And every two seconds, the bonus level decreases by 100. Well, at least on level 1. As you get further in the game, later levels, the bonus timer decreases quicker. If you jump over a barrel, you get 100 points. If you jump over two barrels, you get 300 points. If you happen to be able to jump over three barrels at once, you get 800 points. And I know 
I know there are some times in the arcade game when it shows 800 but only gives you 500 points. I don't know if that little bug is recreated in Donkey Kong PK, Donkey Kong XM, to tell you the truth. Jumping over a Firefox is worth 100, 300, or 800, just like the barrels. If you use the hammer, anything that you hit with it that's hittable, like the Firefoxes, fireballs, barrels, and as it says in the manual, sand piles, you get 300 points. Every time you cross a rivet and clear it, you get 100 points. And the prizes that appear in various parts of the game, the umbrella, the purse, the lawnmower, or whatever that thing is, Oh, it's a hat, apparently. Uh, you get anywhere from 300 to 800 points. And uh, what I didn't realize, I never knew this until I read this manual, is that you can actually jump over the springs on the elevator screen and uh, get 100 points for that. Um, I am not going to try that personally. <laughs> I'd rather be safe. And um, let's see, the sand piles, I guess... You get 100 points for jumping them and 300 points for smashing them with a hammer. So that's how the point scoring works in Donkey Kong. I believe you get an extra life at 7,000 points, and it's only one extra life at that point. So those are the finer points of Donkey Kong XM and Donkey Kong PK, of course. Here's a surprise for you. I asked for feedback about Donkey Kong PK. So let's um, start with AtariAge.com, see what the users over there think. S. Ramirez 2008 says, This is a masterpiece, the definitive home version of Donkey Kong, in my humble opinion. If this game could have been made BITD, Atari could have seriously bragged about bringing the arcade experience to your home. There is so much included in this version, beginning with the intro and between-level animations, including the Pie Factory level. I just love the visuals, and of course the sounds. Oh, those pokey-enhanced sounds. Man, this is a great cart. A favorite option of mine is the ability to select the US or Japanese screen order. My thanks go out to TEP392 for programming this gem, to CPUWiz for providing the boards that accept pokey, and to Mark Oberhäuser for another excellent box. Muchas gracias, senores. Muchas gracias. And uh, muchas gracias to you, S. Ramirez 2008. Or, or should I say, uh, dos mil ocho? Is that right? I don't really know very much Spanish at all. That is one of the few regrets I have in life, that I, when I was in f high school and I had to select a foreign language, that um, sophomore year there was French and Spanish available. I remember when I was in eighth grade, my eighth grade teacher said, take French. That is so freaking easy. And he was right. It was easy for me, at least. Uh, I don't remember much of it, though, but, uh, I, but I aced French throughout high school, so I uh, must have been right. But I really wish I had taken Spanish because it would have been it would have come in so handy for me. It really would have. But anyway, uh, and as you can, as you could could hear there, I could I cannot do the the roll of the tongue on the R's. So if I ever do learn Spanish, which I hope to someday, I'm always going to have an accent. But oh well. Uh, but thanks, uh, Estramiros two thousand eight. Well, um, 
Say, S. Ramirez 2008, I got a question for you. Do you like this game by any chance? <laughs> and uh, um, S. Ramirez 2008 posted a couple of screenshots, uh, uh, one of the title screen, one of the selection screen that has uh, the difficulty selection, the screen order set to Japan, and there's a screen capture of the elevator springboard level, whatever you want to call it, and a picture of Mark Oberhäuser's artwork for Donkey Kong PK. Oh, by the way, well, something I, I do want to address uh, in Ferg's Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, he mentioned that he thought that the name would have been pronounced Oberhauser, and he wasn't sh- he didn't quite understand why I was saying Oberhäuser. Well, the explanation for that, for those of you who don't follow uh, the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast's message board, uh, my explanation for that is um, well. A long time ago, I tried to teach myself German because I always thought it was a really fascinating language. So I got a book from the library about how to speak German. And um, I, I never made it past the uh, pronunciation guide. <laughs> so um, I, I, it really, really wasn't uh, very helpful for me other than that if the guide was right and if I remember correctly, then it means I can pronounce German correctly at this point. But yeah, at first glance, it looks like it's Oberhauser, but the A has an umlaut over it. And A with an umlaut followed by a U, according to this book, if I remember correctly, is actually pronounced Oi, kind of like the German EU by itself, which makes sense because the umlaut actually takes the place of an E. So it's basically the same as uh, O-B-E-R-H-A-E-U-S-E-R. So the Oi comes from that EU part. If it weren't for the umlaut, it would be Oberhauser. At least I think I'm right about that. If uh, anybody listening speaks German and knows for sure, just let me know. But yeah, seriously, I'm I'm sorry, Esramirs. I spend more time addressing Esramirs 2008 about non-English languages than I do about the freaking game. Good grief. But yeah, this is a, I totally agree with you on all parts. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I'm not the biggest Donkey Kong fan in the world. Uh, part of it is simply because at a certain point, I just cannot get past the elevator stage unless I'm extremely lucky. But I got to say, I am loving Donkey Kong PK. It is a fantastic, fantastic port. I totally agree with you there. And this whole thing you mentioned about Atari could have uh, bragged about bringing the arcade experience to your home. And I, I'm pretty sure this has been addressed before, if not by me, then certainly by the No Swear Gamer in his 7800 Game by Game podcast. But I think that's exactly why possibly they didn't go through a heck of a lot of effort to make a perfect Donkey Kong. Because Donkey Kong was old news. It was, what, 1980, 81? And we're talking about a console that had its kind of soft launch in 1984. At this point, arcade games had become considerably advanced, uh, at least comparative to the time. And also there was the North American video game crash. And on top of all that, Atari was stubbornly under the Trammell leadership, trying to get out of the video game market, concentrating on computers. In 1986, when they, when there was the much bigger relaunch, yeah, I mean, people weren't going to want to play Donkey Kong, Bubble Bobble, maybe. Uh, what else was around 1986? I don't know. But that's something to consider. I mean, it's. I mean, if you put yourself in Atari's shoes at the time, you might find yourself in a no matter what I do, it's going to be a bad decision kind of situation. <laughs> 
And yeah, I totally agree about the selection of the United States or Japanese order. That makes a huge, huge difference. And uh, no matter where you grew up, you can play the game the way that you remember it. So thank you, S. Ramirez2008. And Save2600 says, wish I had a copy. I'm on a waiting list for one at least. Yeah. Oh, believe me, you do wish you had a copy. I don't mean to rub it in your face, Save2600. Jinx says, a great game, the best DK on any 8-bit system I have ever played. And I have to agree, it's the same same for me, too. Then again, I haven't played ever. I have not played the Coleco Adam version of Donkey Kong. Am I remembering right that that version had a fifth screen to it or is that just junior i don't know but apparently dk for the coleco adam had all the levels and animations so that's nice to know and pac-man plus bob de crescenzo says tep did an amazing job on this easily the most arcade accurate version of donkey kong out there excellent thumbs up icon what can i say i mean nobody in their right mind could ever disagree with that thank you uh Thank you, Bob. And um, also on Atari Age, I have a very insightful feedback from Trevor, and this is going to get kind of long. And um, let's see what he has to say. What started as a simple hack of adding pokey sound snowballed into including the Pie Factory conveyor belt stage, intermissions, and ultimately culminated into a near complete 95 to 98% rewrite of an entire game by TEP392. Donkey Kong PK is close to perfect on the 7800. Why only close to perfect? Let's get the negatives out of the way. Resolution and orientation. The arcade original is a vertical screen at 224 by 256. For the 7800, we are working with a horizontal screen with a resolution of 160 by 240. However, the difference between the two is not as drastic or significant as one may think as the graphics have been masterfully altered to fit within the confines of the designated resolution. Wonderfully so, since the aspect ratio delta was taken into account and all graphics were updated accordingly. Graphics retain a much truer arcade appearance. A huge amount of gratitude and commendations go to Defender 2600 for this accomplishment. Analyzing the comparisons down to a science alignment of porting graphical details over to the 7800 is phenomenal and quite incredible. Another compromise regarding the graphics is the status slash informational layout. It incorporates slash retains some of the original 7800 port design while modifying other areas, a great improvement overall despite still deviating from the arcade considerably. Additionally, there is less than a handful of gameplay difference between this port and the arcade original. Even then, they are extremely minute and may be or remain hidden to the casual player. Now, holy mackerel, the positives. This is to date the best console port regarding arcade accuracy. The layout, timings, difficulty is matched near exact to the arcade. Some may be taken back by the challenge, but it is indeed arcade difficulty being experienced. There is an easier novice setting for those a bit overwhelmed by the arcade difficulty or and have grown accustomed to the much easier home ports on a plethora of other platforms, i.e. NES, ColecoVision, etc. By the way, I think that's the second episode in a row that I use the word plethora for me, listener feedback. Uh, anyway, uh, Trevor goes on. This is a short list compiled respecting the amount of work and accuracy of this port. 
And I'm not going to read the, the spoiler list that uh, Trevor included because it's pretty much already covered. Um, it's nothing that would ruin the game for anybody who hasn't played it yet, by the way. But anyway, um, I'm going to continue with Trevor's um, feedback here. Trevor says, that above spoiler list does not cover everything. Nevertheless, Donkey Kong PK plays marvelously. This is a Donkey Kong fan's dream. Controls are smooth, fluid, and quick responding, including walking, jumping, ladder climbing, and, and he puts on in parentheses, mounting. While the new DK releases under the 2600 have shown respectable DK Tia effects are possible, the Pokey is leaps and bounds above the horrid original 7800 port noises with its brash and dissonant sound choices. If you hate arcade Donkey Kong, you will hate this port. Well, maybe not. <laughs> There's the novice setting making it significantly easier than the arcade, but not tremendously so. Teddy bear difficulty. Selection of either US or Japan level layout and gameplay rules, as well as starting level, really helps to round out the options and gives a great opportunity for all to start at their desired respective order of level screens. Regardless, this is an awesome port of a beloved arcade game. It's an outstanding addition to the 7800 library and the gold standard to how all Nintendo arcade titles should have been ported to the 7800. Oh my God, that last part there, Trevor, you hit the nail on the head. Trevor, thank you, thank you, thank you. Very thoughtful as usual. No big, sur no surprise at all, actually. Not Nonetheless, a big surprise. I mean, yeah, if you spent a lot of time playing the arcade Donkey Kong, especially if you played it regularly, uh, you will still find it a tiny bit jarring when you see the aspect ratio of even this version of uh, Donkey Kong, but it's still, still, still an amazing port. So yeah, taking what Trevor says into account, yeah, it's still going to be freaking amazing. You love it if you haven't played it yet or if you haven't seen it yet. And by the way, Trevor usually posts some great videos online whenever a new uh, homebrew comes out. He's got a lot of stuff on his uh, YouTube channel. In fact, I should put a link to that in the show notes. We also heard from, so we also heard on Atari Age from Dr. Venkman. Peter Venkman, that's from Ghostbusters. You used Ghostbusters for evil. Trevor detailed the specifics of the game perfectly. There's no need for me to try to add anything on that score as nothing I could say would contribute meaningfully to the discussion. I will take a different tack, however. When I was a teenager, I got an Atari 8-bit computer in 1982, a 400, and a year later sold it to a friend and upgraded it to an 800. Once I had an Atari computer, one title I sought out was Landon Dyer's now-classic Donkey Kong version, written for the 400 and 800 machines. If you're not familiar with Landon, his work was incredible for the times, and he's had a long career in tech since then. Here, in his own words, is the story of how he wrote his version of Donkey Kong. And he puts a link to uh, Landon Dyer's blog in his post, and I will put that link in the show notes as well. Anyway, I was impressed immediately by that cartridge, which I may have gotten for my birthday in the summer of 1983, or perhaps for Christmas later that year. I played it along with a few other Atari 8-bit favorites like Joust, Defender, and Dig Dug. But my attention was split among so many things that I never got very good at it. About the time I started buying Atari hardware again in 2001 or 2002, I picked up a 7800 super cheap on an online auction site no one had hardly heard of called eBay, smiley face. 
I never had a 7800 as a kid. I had read in the gaming mags since the spring or summer of 1984 that it was coming real soon now, trademark. But then Warner Communications panicked, Atari Inc. was sold off and broken apart, Jack stepped in, etc. I went off to college in the fall of 1986 with a shiny new 1040 ST in tow, finished up four years later, and in the meantime, the world had somehow been conquered by the NES. I never saw a 7800 in the wild until I won that eBay auction. The first time I plugged a joust cartridge, I saw immediately it put the Atari 8-bit version to shame. The physics were more realistic and arcade accurate, the enemies much more aggressive and smarter, and the buzzard was flying buzzkill. Similarly, Dig Dug on the 7800 makes either of the two 8-bit versions look like poo. So as I gathered up my growing library of 7800 titles, at some point I took a look back at 7800 DK in some online videos and in emulation. To be charitable, it's not particularly good. So I never bothered to seek out a copy, nor did I ever buy a lot of games that included it. No big loss. A couple of years back, I saw a thread of TEP392s about Donkey Kong XM, planned to take advantage of the XM module, replete with pokey sound, HSC support, revised graphics and gameplay, etc. This was finally a version of a classic, suited to the power of the 7800 and not hindered by terrible sound. Intrigued, I searched out all the posts and thread related to this title and the later Donkey Kong PK version. I saw where TEP392 had been keeping a list of interested parties for a future run. I put my name in the hat, and finally, 18 months or more after that, a new run occurred, and I was lucky enough to be able to take advantage. In the two weeks or so since my copy arrived, I have played more Donkey Kong than at probably any time since 1983. I'm still by no means good at the game, but with the novice difficulty settings, I've finally managed to see all the levels, something I never managed as a kid on the... Atari 8-bit version or in the arcade, and even rescued Pauline. I've shown it to other people and their jaws drop. Even better, they want to play it and I can see the joy and delight when they do. And after all, the whole reason we play games is to be happy. On that score, in addition to everything else the others have said about the game, this title knocks it out of the park. To me, it is easily one of the better titles I've played for any 8-bit system and has rapidly become one of my 7800 favorites. Dr. Venkman, thank you so much. I, I love getting feedback on the, for games for this podcast because everybody just contributes the most thoughtful and well-spoken things, and uh, Dr. Venkman is absolutely no exception here. Thanks to you and everybody else. And yeah, something that I, I just wanted to point out here. And I gotta say, you're talking about, say, the Atari 8-bit computer versions, the 400-800 versions versus the 7800 versions. I mentioned in the previous episode that I have an Atari 600 XL I got from uh, my friend Jimmy G, actually. I traded, traded my Atari 5200 for it because I didn't like the 5200. But uh, I got the 600 XL and I hacked 64K of RAM in it so I could use it to uh, more potential than its factory defaults, I guess. And I gotta say, for the most part, when I would load up, say, the 7800 versions of games on my 7800, and then I'd try the so-called 8-bit versions on the 600XL, 
man, what a buzzkill. <laughs> Seriously. Like Centipede, I think, was much better on the 7800, for example. Uh, the exception, I think, Dig Dug. There were actually two 8-bit versions of Dig Dug. For example, like the one that my brother had for his Atari XE. He had a 65XE computer that actually Jimmy G now has. Um, but um, that version, I think, is actually the best home version I've ever seen. Uh, the 7800 is a close second, but uh, thanks again, Dr. Venkman, if that is your real name. There we have it. And on Atari I.O., I got some feedback from TrekMD, a very thoughtful feedback. I, 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 I always get great feedback from TrekMD, always, so I'm very appreciative of that. But TrekMD says, I had originally written this for the XM version of the game, which is the PK version anyway, so I have just made some changes to the text. <laughs> Atari's port of Donkey Kong was pretty good, but it was missing certain details from the arcade game and had TS sound that left much to be desired. Enter TEP392 with Donkey Kong PK, a version of the game that addresses many of the shortcomings of the original port. This version adds pokey sound, borrowed from the 8-bit version, and that alone makes a world of difference. Other changes include the addition of a more arcade-like title screen, the addition of the intro screen in which Kong climbs up the building carrying Pauline, the how-high-can-you-get screens in between levels, Kong beating his chest with sound as you try to rescue Pauline, Kong escaping with Pauline at the end of each level, and the addition of the entire cement or pie factory screen. Kong moves from left to right on the top level as in the arcade. In addition, the graphics and colors have been updated on all screens to better match the arcade. A menu screen has been added to select various options, the score area has been updated to match the arcade, the character sprites have improved, the AI, the artificial intelligence, of the firefoxes and fireballs has been updated to be arcade perfect, the hammers have been moved to the correct positions, and barrel tossing and bouncer patterns have been updated to match the arcades. Two difficulty options are available, novice and arcade, and you can also select whether to play the American or Japanese sequence of screens. In short, with all these changes, Donkey Kong PK is probably the ultimate home version of Donkey Kong, and it plays in none other than the 7800 Pro system. TrekMD, thank you. Thank you for that wonderful feedback right there. A couple of things I, I want to address here. I want to address. Uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but the how high can you get screens it was sometime in 2001, I think, when um, I was unemployed and I had gone to a job interview. And on the way back home from the job interview, I stopped at a mall that um, I was this I was living in New Jersey for a while. And there were two malls near where we lived. And one of them I had never set foot in. My wife always said, no, you don't want to go there. But just out of curiosity, on my way home from the interview, I stopped into that mall and looked around. Yeah, it was pretty deserted. There wasn't a heck of a lot there. But there was an arcade in there that was unattended. It was just like a change machine or a token machine and a bunch of games just scattered around randomly. And there was no staff or anything there. But it was all like the classics. It was all like Donkey Kong. It had Pac-Land in there. I was so thrilled because that was my favorite Pac-Man game. But they also had Donkey Kong in there, and I had not played that game for years, at least the arcade game. So I, 
I stopped and I played a few games. I played Donkey Kong, and there was so much about it that I had totally forgotten. I had totally forgotten, for example, about the how high can you get screen. And the music that played behind it, I was like, wait, that sounds so familiar. And then it occurred to me, the music from the how high can you get screen, it's a dead ringer for this little short section of um, the song Sky Pilot by Eric Burden and the Animals. When Eric Burden sings the line, how high can you fly? It's just scary, scary close to that. I'm sure it was just a coincidence, but even then, if it were, I'm sure that there, that just five notes is not enough to cause any kind of lawsuit or anything. But what really, really nailed it for me that it had to be Sky Pilot, Crazy Climber, which, as I mentioned before, is basically a clone of Donkey Kong with uh, questionable legality. I mean, I, there's a, I'm not, I don't want to get into that mess again there, but the equivalent screening crazy climber actually says how high can you try how high can you try how high can you fly come on now anyway um trek md goes on about the arcade accuracy let me tell you something about um a private message conversation that that was going on on atari age there was one user who who was like man this game is too hard for me it's a lot harder than i remember it i can't even play the thing I'm, i might just want to resell this to somebody and TEP392 responded and said, hey, I'm sorry to hear that, but I promise you this is pretty much how the arcade machine worked. And something that I didn't realize, I never, well, because I don't do this kind of stuff very much, but apparently if you were to play this side by side, like have side by side screens going of the arcade Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong PK, when the game starts, the first Firefox generates at exactly the same moment as the arcade. They're in perfect sync with each other. It's just one way to demonstrate the arcade accuracy of, of Donkey Kong PK. So yeah, there's something to be said. And also when I play Donkey Kong at the arcade, I do have patterns that I use or not so much patterns, but habits, and they completely transition over to this. So I totally agree with Trek MD's assertion on all that. Also on Atari Age, we heard from Ground Troop. Why do I keep saying we? I'm the only one doing this podcast. Uh, anyway, I heard from Ground Trooper. He says, I just saw your Let's Compare video. Oh, I'll talk about that later on in this podcast, by the way. <laughs> and it reminded me I needed to leave feedback. I missed Crazy Bricks and Scramble because of life getting in the way or first things first, as Phil would say. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have much to add to the excellent breakdown by Trevor, but here's my DK history and two cents. As a kid, I loved DK in the arcade. I wasn't that good at it because I didn't have a lot of quarters to put in it, and I live very far from the local arcade, 15, 16 miles, according to Google Maps these days. It seemed farther than that as a kid who was still in junior high and couldn't drive, and there was no public transportation in my little Arizona town. When I saw ads in Electronic Games for DK by Coleco for the 2600, I was excited. I remember earning the money for it and ordering it via mail, probably from an ad in Electronic Games. Well, the day finally came, I was so excited to open that box and get home and play. Well, I am sure we all know where this is headed. Like many other 2600 arcade ports, Coleco's DK didn't really live up to my 11-year-old expectations 
but I played it anyway. It was all I had in terms of easy DK accessibility. Two or three years go by. I'm getting ready to graduate from high school. My 2600 had kind of taken a backseat to an Apple IIe and an Atari 800. The 800 was my upgraded gaming machine, since I never could convince my parents to get me a 7800. The main reason I wanted a 7800, as I have probably stated in previous feedbacks, was for the quote-unquote superior arcade ports. Fast forward to September 2016. Something lit an Atari fire under me again. I can't even remember what it was now. I got back on Atari age and started lurking and researching. I decided that I would get that 7800 that I never got as a kid, and I would track down those games that I never got to play on a 7800, and the side bonus was that I could play all my childhood 2600 carts that I still had. So I found a used 7800 at a used record store chain here in Phoenix, and paid probably too much for it knowing what I know now, but I paid for it with a rebate gift card so I can live with it. I started tracking down 7800 games, found a few in local shops, but mostly I went the eBay route and think I did okay with most of them even being CIB. The day finally came when the eBay Donkey Kong showed up. I was giddy, just like that junior high school kid was for his 2600. Oh god, I can see where this is going. <laughs> Again, I popped it in. Wow, my eyes were amazed and my ears were assaulted. What a disappointment. The sound was grating on my ears. I muted the sound, but it made the game even less enjoyable. Flash forward again to about 45 days ago. Someone on Facebook, probably the Atari age group, posted a video of DKPK. I was dying to get my hands on it. I came to the forums and found some threads about it, but couldn't figure out how to acquire it. There was an auction in the AA forums for a one-of-a-kind CIB DKBK cart with proceeds going to help CPU Wiz with his medical bills. This was offered up by TEP392. Well, I was outbid on the second day and the auction ended up going for double of my max bid, foiled again. But in the PM bidding process told me he was getting ready to offer another run of the cart and I asked him to add me to the list. I then made some comments on that if on that Facebook post, and a comment was made that I needed to contact TEP392 over here in the forums. I explained that I had already been in contact with TEP392. I later figured out that TEP392 was the one on Facebook who told me to contact him on Atari Age. We both had a good laugh when we mashed up our AA identities and our FB real-life names. I bought three pokies on eBay for various pokey projects that are coming up in the community and sent one to TEP392 for my cart. I received the DKPK around the same time as you did. Unfortunately, I have not had a lot of time to play it, but the little time that I have has been extremely enjoyable. The pokey sound is outstanding, and the missing levels makes it complete. I highly recommend getting on the next waitlist and add this to your collection, as it will never see the light of day in the Atari Age store due to copyright issues. This is the only Donkey Kong you need on the 7800. Sorry for that long post that was way more than my two cents, more like $20. You can edit as needed. Most of my feedback has turned into my personal history with the arcade version and then acquiring the homebrew version. If you want, you can name my segment GT's Storytellers, like VH1 Storytellers, winky smiley face. 
Thanks for all the time and hard work you put into this great podcast, Dauber. I look forward to seeing it pop up in my feed. Well, thank you so much, Ground Trooper. That was really kind of you to say. And something you said, I, I really do have to emphasize. Yeah, Ground Trooper said you're not going to find Donkey Kong PK, or really Donkey Kong XM for that matter, in the Atari Age store. Yeah, you will not. Nintendo is notoriously litigious when it comes to uh, their properties. Just um, if you're if you're not familiar with it, do some research on a homebrew 2600 game called Princess Rescue. <laughs> but uh, and the thing is, though, it's not. There, there's just something that I've that I've learned over time is that when these companies come down on indie homebrewers, they're not doing it because they're bullies. It's not because of money. It's simply because of property protection. That's all there is to it. Because if there ever comes a time when they have to fight to protect their copyrights and their other ownerships, and someone can prove that there was something that they missed that they didn't protect, it could look really bad on them. And they could really, they could legally lose their properties on that. It could basically, because a judge can say, well, you obviously didn't care enough to protect it before. So you know what? You don't have a case here. So at least that's the impression that I'm under. So in fact, I private messaged Perry on Atari age. And I said, this is really good. Uh, would you mind if I talked about it on the podcast? And he said, no, no problem at all. Go right ahead. So here I am. And uh, the only thing is like when he was posting the ROMs, I made sure to not load them up on my Mateos cartridge for use at um Midwest Gaming Classic, because I know Nintendo was there last year, and I think they were there again this year. But anyway, that's going farther away from Ground Trooper's little uh, feedback there. And the thing is, your feedback, Ground Trooper, is so familiar, because I think I've lived it. Everybody here, everybody listening, prob or at least a lot of people listening, have probably, probably lived it themselves. But um, thanks again, Ground Trooper. That was uh, great of you to take the time to write all that. Thank you. So that's what people had to say about Donkey Kong PK. So everybody, thank you very, very, very much for taking the time to share your thoughts on that. So that is Donkey Kong XM, Donkey Kong PK, however we're going to call it. I don't know. Essentially the same game. <laughs> and... Uh, I gotta admit, I never was a huge Donkey Kong fan, but after playing the 7800 Donkey Kong for 11 years, and then suddenly this comes in, oh, wow, <laughs> yeah, what a difference that TEP392 made with this amazing, amazing conversion. My huge thanks goes to TEP392 for not for not only making this game, but also selling me one of these cartridges. I am so grateful. It's really, really awesome. But yeah, I've known of Donkey Kong pretty much my entire arcade gaming life. And I think I mentioned this before, but hey, it's worth mentioning again, especially for someone who's hearing this podcast right now for the very first time. My first exposure to Donkey Kong was, I think... I think it was President's Day weekend of 1981, I think. You know what? No, it had to have been 82 now that I think about it. Because, yeah, because didn't I already say that uh, it was released on April 22nd, 1981? Yeah, so it would have been President's Day weekend 82. So, yeah, I was a year past what I, re what I thought. So, wow, I've been remembering things wrong for many years. But anyway, it was President's Day weekend 1982. 
And for whatever reason, my family spent the weekend at a Holiday Inn, which was just a couple of miles away from home. I think it was just to get away and spend some time at the pool and everything. That was a good, we had a fun time, I got to admit. And I remember hearing these four tones. And I thought that maybe it was some kind of a paging system at the hotel, at the front desk. Uh, Because I remember at Marshall Field at the Orland Square Mall, when uh, I'd walk through there, I would hear at random times these like bell tones or something. It turned out it was uh, somebody at the counter like calling for for help, like if there were too many customers, they need another person or something. I thought maybe those four tones that I was hearing was coming from the front desk. Well, when we went into the game room, turned out it was Mario jumping over a barrel. Somebody was playing Donkey Kong, and that was the first time I ever saw Donkey Kong. I didn't actually play it that weekend, but that weekend was essentially the beginning of my love for arcade gaming. That was my first exposure to Pac-Man, and of course, if you've listened to this podcast regularly, you know what a big Pac-Man fan I am. It all started that night. There was a a Space Invaders stand-up, which I played for the first time. Um, It was, in fact, that was the day that I learned that it was an arcade game. I thought it was just an Atari 2600 game. (laughs) So, yeah, there was Space Invaders, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man. Oh, man, I don't remember what else they had. I remember there was one game they had. It had to have been a motorcycle racing game because it had handlebars, but I don't really remember anything about it. I didn't really watch it very well. There was also a pool table and I think maybe a pinball machine in that game room, but it was a fun time, really fun time. And it just sticks with me. And, And after that, the Kroger store near where we lived had a Crazy Kong, which is kind of a... I, I know there's a long story behind the legality or semi-legality of Crazy Kong, but it was a Donkey Kong clone. And many of the strategies that you could use in Donkey Kong also worked in Crazy Kong. Oh, except for jumping over Donkey Kong's foot. Um, that strategy didn't work in that game for some reason. I, I don't know why, but and I never played that Crazy Kong machine either, but it was there. And of course, every computer platform, every gaming console since has had Donkey Kong on it. There are three that really stick out. Of course, there was the ColecoVision, which was a really good one. There was the Intellivision and the Atari 2600 versions, both of which personally I think suck. (laughs) But the main reason for that is because they only have the ramps and the rivets and that's it. And part of me is thinking, well, you know what? Is that really a huge deal considering how massively successful Donkey Kong was and that most of the people who bought Donkey Kong for those consoles probably would never even see the elevator or pie factory screen? But hey, I'm going to stop rambling and waxing philosophical and waxing poetic about Donkey Kong. But before I shut up, there are some people I need to thank and I absolutely want to thank Thank you to my Patreon sponsors, Richard Valdez, Gray Defender, Jimmy G, and Ed Ladin Controllers. I very much appreciate your support. You guys are awesome. And those of you who are listening, thank you. You're awesome as well. Even if you listen to this and decide, you know what, I hate this podcast, you're still awesome. Thank you for your time. You can send me an email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. That's F-A-B, the number 4IT.com. The show notes are at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Twitter handle is homebrew78. And the YouTube channel is homebrew7800, homebrew7800, yay. 
And in fact, I have put up a video in that YouTube channel that does kind of a side-by-side comparison of the original 7800 Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong PK. So you can see for yourself how different those two versions of the games are. I take text submissions and audio submissions. Feel free. We've had only one audio submission in the past, uh, how long have I been doing this? Six months, give or take. So, hey, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Um, the next episode, which should be out if everything is on schedule, which should be out June 17th. The next episode will be about Asteroids Deluxe by request. Oh, by the way, while I'm talking about Asteroids Deluxe, there's something that I wanted to bring up, and that is the Atari Jaguar Game by Game podcast. Why am I bringing that up? Well, because the current episode of that show is H01, meaning his first homebrew review, and that is the new Jaguar homebrew Rebooteroids. And um, it's a supercharged asteroids game for jaguar sound i don't have a jaguar so um i don't really know exactly what it's like but the way shinto described it in that podcast it sounds pretty freaking amazing so you might want to give that a listen and i don't have a jaguar but i still listen to that podcast simply because i love how shinto delivers everything when i first heard him on ferg's podcast and phil's podcast I kept thinking, man, why does this dude not have his own podcast? And I was thrilled to find out he was about to start one. So give it a listen, the Atari Jaguar Game by Game podcast. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And um, what else do I have to say? But uh, thanks again for listening. And remember, please give these homebrew developers the support they deserve. Have a great June, everybody. Donkey Kong kill screen might be coming up if anybody wants to see it.